Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus listeners. It's Brittany here. And today I'm joined by Miriam Pierce, who is a school social worker at Chicago Public Schools. Miriam and I previously worked together at the same nonprofit for a couple of years, and I've had the pleasure of seeing her at several stages on her path to becoming a social worker. I'm so excited to have her here today to share a bit about her personal journey to school social work and parallels that she sees between the fields of social work and medicine, especially building trust and relationships with students and patients. So Miriam, thanks again for being here. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what led you to your current role at Chicago Public Schools? Yeah, so I am from Chicago. I grew up in West Rogers Park neighborhood. So kind of been here almost all my life since I was four. I am a sister of two and uh, a daughter to a single parent who's an immigrant. And that's kind of my background. And I, yeah, I went through a lot growing up. I would say I didn't have the most wonderful childhood. And there was a lot of difficulties, a lot of grief that I that I had to kind of manage as a young person um, navigating through the world. And for me, that really is what led me into social work as a profession, um, specifically school social work, because so much of what I went through happened during my like school years. That was just always something that was on my heart to kind of be the person that I needed when I was younger to be cliche for a second. So as a school social worker now, I work with honestly from preschool to grade 12. At the current time, I'm working in a K through eight school, but I've also worked in high schools, preschools, like all over the place. And it's been so fun. I just started um 2020 so right when the pandemic hit and it was an adventure but it's been such a wonderful wonderful place and i'm just so thankful for the families and the kids and the staff that i get to work with every day miriam thank you so much for sharing those pieces of your story with us and it sounds like they've really made an impact on your life and on your journey to social work could you tell us a bit more about what that decision and journey and process really looked like for you yeah, so I would say in high school, I I feel like at, at high school, we're all in that place where we're like contemplating life and like where we're meant to be in the world. So I did a lot of soul searching like at that age because I didn't really have a lot of time to do trial and error, if that makes sense. So I, I'm, I grew up low income and going to college, I kind of had to know what I was going to do so that I could do just that and I graduated early and like went just, you know, because that was a situation I was in. So I had to make those decisions early on. And I'm glad that I did because it really was the right path for me. And honestly, the way that I find found out that this was what I wanted to do in life was through looking at my past and really thinking about where I have been and, and how I got to the place I was when I was, I don't know, like 19, 20, when I was making those decisions. 
Um, and at first I was like, okay, I need to go into policy. I want to be a education policy maker because I've been in schools and I have been suspended in schools and I have not gotten the support I needed in schools and I have gotten support I needed in other ways. Like I kind of had that background where I saw how schools can be life changing and schools can also be completely opposite. And you know, we know all these things about criminalization of students of color in schools. Those were just always on my mind because I had grown up so close to those experiences and, and kind of seeing firsthand what it feels like to go through a lot and not feel like you get that support at the place you're at eight hours a day, five days a week, right? So I wanted to go into policy and as I was in college, I, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely love learning about policy, reading all these like educational theorists. It was it was wonderful. I, I, I could still do it today, you know? And I had this experience where I was working in a kindergarten classroom and I kind of realized at that moment like this is where I need to be. I can be on top making decisions and making calls for what happens in schools and, and what all that looks like or I can be here with kids as they're experiencing anxiety, depression, frustration, grief, abuse as they're living their lives and, and be there and hold them and hold space for them and I just, it hit me, like I knew that that was what I was meant to do on this earth. I know that sounds really sappy, but I think there's just those moments where you know, like, this is what I'm here to do. And I've always felt that since that moment, it has never gone away. I know to my core, like, I'm here on this earth to love children, no matter where they come from, no matter what they act like, to unconditionally love them and support them. And yeah. That's when I got into social work because that was kind of, for me, the best pathway towards that. Um, there's a few different options in schools and how to support kids, but social work was kind of the perfect medium and I, I love it. Wow. Yes, absolutely. It's clear that this isn't just a job to you and that it's a really big part of who you are and serves a larger purpose for you in your life. And you've given us a good sense generally of your role but could you tell us a bit more about what your day-to-day -day looks like? So school social work is interesting in that it is such a, I don't know if it's a new field, but I feel like social work in general is such an expansive field where there's not a lot of regulation in a lot of ways. Like people do so many different things and some people do it to fidelity and some people don't. But in CPS, which is where I work, Chicago Public Schools, there is a pretty good system to it and I can share like what it looks like in CPS, but just know that it might not look that way in any other district or especially if you go state to state because standards change completely. But for, for my job, school social workers get a caseload of students and that caseload includes kids with disabilities. So these are students who have what's called an individualized education plan. They could have anything from ADHD to a cognitive disability. It could really be any type of disability that's impacting their educational performance. Um, and then we also work with kids who have what's called a 504 plan, and that's kids who just get some accommodations within their class. They aren't necessarily taken into special education classes, but they get accommodations and support and they might get social work services. So students who have anxiety, depression, just concerns that are, are impacting them in their life. So that is my caseload of students. And again, this there's so many different 
kinds of, of disabilities that I work with and ranges of students. I have students who are pretty much in general education and, you know, might have ADHD or autism or, again, anxiety, depression. And then I also have kids who are in the special education um, setting where they receive their services and their education in a smaller classroom. So I really get to work with a very large spectrum of students, which I love. Um, and then my role is to fulfill a goal every year. So each year on their education plan, the students get a goal for any relevant subject. So they might get an English goal, a math goal, or a social work goal. And that goal is basically like my start point to a service plan. So if you know anything about therapy or counseling, it's kind of like you figure out what the concern is and what you want to work with the client towards. So for me, I work with my students on things like um, learning coping strategies for um, social anxiety or learning techniques to organize and manage their work and build independence. For my students who have ADHD, that's a big skill that we work on. So really across the board, all kinds of different like social emotional concerns. A lot of my kids struggle with friendships. So we work on how do you make friends, right? How do we communicate in ways that build the connections we want in life so it, it's it's such a fun job because every day is different and my kids are so different so I'm never like oh my god I gotta do the same thing and talk to them about the same lesson like it's always so fun and so special and um we work with a team of clinicians so my team includes a nurse a case manager a psychologist occupational therapist speech pathologist and nurse and sometimes more, but that's typically the, the base of the team. So we work together very closely. That's so interesting. I didn't realize there was that level of interprofessional work that went into your day-to-day -day with all of those different team members. I'm curious about what your relationship is with the rest of the team and how much overlap do you have? So it's, it's nice because we all have our own lanes and we all do very different things, but then we all come together and we, and we have each other to rely on. So... Basically, each student has certain clinicians assigned to their case. So a student who has, let's say, autism and asthma. And every year when we look at their case and give them new goals that they're going to work towards, we would have myself, the social worker, I would be maybe working towards social skills or dealing with anxiety or whatever it is that that student wants to work on that year. And then the nurse would also be there because she has to address the concern of asthma and making sure a safety plan is in action, making sure we have updated medical records. Every three years, kids get reevaluated and that's when the psychologist comes in. So the psych doesn't really always give direct services like I do, but they are always evaluating students who are referred or every three years when they need an updated eval. Um, so then the psych would be part of the team every three years. And then let's say the student also has a little bit of difficulty with his grasp. Then the occupational therapist would be in the team as well. You know, if maybe she's working with him on holding a pencil correctly, right? And then, yeah, I mean, speech pathologist, let's say the kid is having trouble communicating and, and getting his thoughts to come out the way he wants them to. She might also be on the case, like it just really depends on the kid. So there might be a case where there's just two of us or a case where there's all of us, right? But we do work hand in hand and it's a really nice feeling to know that like all of the concerns that a student could possibly have, they are getting met. And I mean, not all the concerns, but you know, as many as we can, I think that's, it's really, really important. And it's special because 
it doesn't happen in many settings where you have that interdisciplinary connection. So I think that is what I enjoy the most about it is we get to really collaborate. It sounds like there really is a lot of kind of working together, each of you bringing your own strengths and Mm -hmm. your own kind of services, but then working together towards a common goal for each kid. Yes. Yeah. Something else that you brought up that I'm so curious about is goal setting. Who's setting those goals? How is that process working? Is it collaborative with the student or is it more kind of the team that you're working with at school? Mm -hmm. How does that process happen? When I evaluate students, I make sure to ask them a series of questions about their social emotional concerns. So I ask them, you know, depending on their age range, I'll change up the wording, but I'll ask them like how do you respond when you get angry, right? To see if there's a problem with frustration and managing and coping, right? How often do you feel sad? Like just questions to assess where they're at in those emotional and social categories, fighting with others, getting along with peers, focusing in class, like all the range. And then after I ask them those questions, I'll be like, okay, of all those things we talked about above, which do you want to work on? And they'll tell me, they'll be like, I really want to work on my focus. I feel like I need to learn how to not get distracted. Or they'll be like, I need to stop fighting Miss Pierce. Like I I need help with with managing my anger. And almost all the time they're spot on. They know exactly what they need to work on. I never have to be like, sorry, we're actually going to work on something different. Like it almost just always works out because I mean, kids are so much more aware than we give them the credit for. So I, I do really like to involve them. I think it's important. And that's where I see a lot of overlap between what I do and what doctors do is we have the potential to truly overlook the people we're working with and just set our own goals and and tell them what we think is the problem with them. Or we have the potential to really listen and really come in a responsive way rather than like a reactive way. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I really love that parallel Mm -hmm. that you made. And I'm also really curious about outside of your sessions with them or conversations or evaluations, is that your main kind of interaction point with them or are you seeing more? Much more. And I think that's one of the big reasons I decided on school social work is because school is like a microcosm of the world, right? Like you see everything in the school. Yes, the only required part of my job that like I will get fired for if I don't do is to meet with students on my caseload for whatever amount of minutes they they receive and to write those service notes, right? That's what I that's what I get paid for, but there's so much else you really see every single part of their functioning. Like before I meet with a student, I'm always pulling up their grades because like even if my my goal for them is to work on social anxiety, who's to say that that doesn't tie into their academics, right? That isn't affecting them because maybe they don't present in class and they skip those assignments or they skip school in general because they're afraid to participate. So I'm always checking their academic performance. I often will go into classes. Sometimes I will do, if I'm doing an evaluation, I have to observe students in their classroom setting. But sometimes I'll just come in if the teacher needs support, you know, if they are having a lot of issues with students not respecting boundaries, I'll come in and do a lesson, right? Like I'm very flexible in that sense where I don't just have to stick to the kids on my caseload. I can go towards the whole school and and, and kind of work with kids as needed. Um, But yeah, you see them interacting with their peers. You see how they talk to their teachers and how they respond to stress. You see what they're like on a day that's testing, right? Like you see them in all of these scenarios 
And then I am very much in contact with families. Every year, like when we have our meeting where we set the goals, parents are in that meeting, so they'll share their concerns. And then I do establish like a contact a frequency of contact basis with all my parents where some of them are like, no, we trust you, Miss Pierce. We don't need to talk that often. Some of them are like, no, I want to check in on a frequent basis to make sure my kid's okay. Or I'll just like pick up the phone one day and be like, I have some concerns. Like what's going on at home and, and what strategies do you use at home that I can talk to the teachers about so they can use at school? Like just the other day, we have a new kid who we're seeing a lot of difficulties with. And I'm like, yeah, what'd you, what'd you guys do at home? Or what did you do at his previous school? And mom shared, oh, at his old school, they did this, this, this. So like, they're part of the team to me, you know, they're part of the decision makers and they share a lot of helpful information with me about how their kid is outside of school as well. Um, so yeah, I do get a really holistic picture of every student. Yeah, it sounds like you really take so many different approaches to supporting your students. And I know in medicine as well, while we first and foremost listen to the patient and their experience, there are definitely certain contexts where insight from family members can be really helpful. And that kind of leads me to my next question about relationships. And that is, how do you build trust in relationships with each of your students? And have you ever encountered challenges in doing so? And if so, what have you done to work through those? Yeah, kids in general, and, and honestly all humans, are very perceptive. And I think like we don't really realize how much people read in between the lines. So you might be like, oh my gosh, hi, it's so nice to see you. But in your heart, you're like, oh my God, this patient again. Or like this student, like, oh my God, I really don't get along, you know? And they feel that and they see that. So for me, trust building is less about like what I say and do and more about like how I come prepared for the job. And for me, that is like truly checking myself every single day to make sure that I'm living up to what I'm here to do, right? Which is to love every single, I mean, that's not my job title, right? I'm not supposed to love students, but like that to me is the heart of what I do is, is having a sense of dignity for every child I work with and seeing them as a full human who has potential and deserves, no matter if I get along with them or not, right? Deserves love and deserves care. And you know, if there's ever a moment where I feel like, I don't know, this student, like, I don't really vibe with them, I check that at the door because if I can't enter the room feeling and truly believing that this kid deserves my time and my space, they're going to know. They're going to feel it. No matter what I do to hide it, they're going to feel it. And honestly, I have had such an easy time building trust because I, I think that they they can feel the genuineness. And I don't always say the right thing. Like, I honestly, when I started this job, I told my mentor, I was like, I have no, I do not know what I'm doing at all. Like, I, I truly feel like no one trained me in things like building trust or how to get a conversation going. Like, grad school, like, they didn't really teach you actual tactics to do those things. And, like, sometimes I'll stutter over my words because I'm nervous. And in the kids, they just see the heart and they just see that I'm genuine and they actually care for them. And we play games together too, which makes it really easy. <laughs> that always helps build trust. Um, and then I think for the ones that are a little bit harder or take more time to build trust, usually the trust starts to form when they see that I am there for them and I am like a steady force of care in their life, even during the hard moments. 
So, you know, I have a student right now who during remote learning, like would never really come to class. And like, I had to ask their parent to get them online to come to my sessions. And it was like a tough experience. And, you know, I would ask all these questions and, and engage them in, in games and conversation as best as I could. And I would get like, I don't know, or like, eh, whatever, you know, like very minimal responses. And it almost took the entire year of me just trying and letting them know like, you know, I'm here and when you want to talk, I am here for you and I care about you and, and you know, just letting them know that I was there. And then I think we had a, a breakthrough moment at like the end of last year where they were like really upset with the teacher and I just, I let them let it out. And then at the end I was like, I'm so proud of you for sharing that with me. And I didn't, I didn't get mad at them for, you know, saying mean things about a teacher. And I, I kind of, in that moment, it was a test almost of like, how is Miss Pierce going to respond? How is she going to react to me saying all these crazy things and like getting really mad? Is she going to talk down to me? Is she going to open up her arms and, and relate to me and understand where I'm coming from. And I think those moments are where you really get to show like, I'm not going to come with judgment. I'm going to come with understanding. So that's typically how I've built trust in, in the more difficult cases. But I will say I haven't had too many, like maybe like two or three in the last two years because kids are just, they're so open and they're so loving. <laughs> and I think another part that I didn't mention is like, being honest, I show up 100% as myself with my kids. And I know like that's a touchy subject in therapy where there's some therapists truly believe like, no, you check yourself out at the door. You don't share your background or your trauma or anything because you're just there to listen. And I think for me, it has to be a balance. Like there has to be a way to connect with your students or your patients where they see like, okay, this isn't just an outsider who knows nothing about my environment or my family or my culture. Like this is someone who also has maybe experienced a level of, of anxiety or frustration in school and, and, and really cares. And, and sometimes I do choose to disclose, not like, I won't be like, oh my God, guess what I've been through? Not like that. But I might be like, oh, you know, for my anxiety, what helps me is this. I'm wondering if I could share with you a couple different strategies and you could pick which one works best for you because it's really different for everyone. And I might even say like, I have a friend who likes to do this and I have, you know, and I'll kind of, I'll come down to their level where it's not just like, I am up here and you're here, but it's like, yeah, we're both in this together. And I often even like tailor my language to use we. And I think also something that's similar between what I do and what doctors do is you have to carry the weight of all of your patients past doctors too like i think people come in with baggage and in traumas in the medical you know profession or like just having such a struggle with insurance and then finally getting your visit and then having a huge copay like there's so much that they carry and you're part of that even though you have probably no fault in it you know people come with you know a little bit of a chip on their shoulder or you know they have their reservations before they let you in or actually share what they're most concerned about like i know for me i've had moments where like in a doctor's visit i have other concerns that i want to talk about but i'm like what if they like don't have time or don't want because I've had I've been shamed before where the doctor's like oh I, I didn't realize you also had this you didn't say that you know you know what I mean like just one bad experience can turn someone away from you as a as a professional and you have to be aware of that I know for me some of my students are like I hated my last social worker and 
I did not think I would like you. And then, of course, they end up liking me. But, like, it, it takes time. And I have to handle that with care and not pretend like this is easy for everyone. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, it seems simple, but I think it it goes a really long way. It makes a much bigger impact than mm-hmm. I think maybe on the surface we give credit for. So, Miriam, a lot of the listeners on Medicus are you know, students, students who are, you know, pre-med students, medical students, or people who are in their kind of early, maybe mid stages of their training Mm -hmm. on their way to becoming, you know, medical professional. Is there anything that you would want them to know as it pertains to social work in general or school social work? Yeah, I mean, I think that in the setting that I work in, because I am so lucky to see such a holistic view of my students, if I could just like share a piece of wisdom from that experience that I have, and I know that a lot of med students will go on to careers where they don't get to always see the holistic picture, I would say even if you don't get to hear about everything else that's going on in, in, in the lives of your patients or other, you know, clinicians or or doctors that they're working with you might not have all of that background I think it's important to always have your eyes open to when it does come up and they might never share they might never share what's going on in their personal lives outside of their health right but just always being aware that there may be something else going on I think is really helpful like for my work you know I might have a student who is specifically working with me on their difficulties with depression, right? That might be their goal and that might be what we talk about in the majority of our sessions, but they might reveal to me um, something that's come up a lot is like difficulties with identity and sexuality and, and, and things like that. And I've, I've talked a lot this year with students about like internalized racism, fat phobia, like transphobia like I've talked about really deep topics that have almost nothing to do with what we're specifically meant to be doing in our sessions but they just come out because I have that time with them and I see them in their contexts right which is such a lucky thing that I can say I, I have but I do think that it has really made me realize like there is so much more to every human being that we interact with And as a doctor, you might see them and be like, okay, they're coming for this one concern today, right? And not realize like they have concerns that are completely different than what you're servicing, but just being aware that there's a potential for them. And when you can, that is such an important thing as much as you can within the terrible system that you have, like trying to come from a holistic place and when you can't fill in the gaps, let there be gaps. Like don't make assumptions about people. Um, and then doing your own learning as well, I think has been really important for me. When, especially when I work with younger students, they might not be able to talk about all the societal structural things that are affecting them, but it's important that I come with that knowledge. So I'm constantly, you know, on Twitter with all the activists that I follow and like I'm constantly reading, you know me, like I'm, I'm constantly reading different things about, racial justice movements in our country and abroad and and restorative justice and like just different concepts. I'm also always trying to hone my practice, learning like different types of therapeutic approaches. Like kids don't really know that. They don't know all the background work that I'm doing, but it is so important so that every day that I come in there, I'm coming from that holistic perspective where I might not know everything that's going on, but I'm always trying to learn more 
And there's never going to be a point where it stops, but I think if, if we can come into the field with that mindset of I'm learning and I'm still, I'm still developing myself as a person, but I see you as a whole human and I see that you're not just here because you had, I don't know, like a UTI or a mental health break or, you know, whatever they came in for, regardless of what, what specialty these folks go into, right? Like it could be anything. Don't just see them for that, but try to see them in a more holistic way because there's so much more to us as humans. There's so much more to what we go through and what we experience and that all affects our health. You know, that is health. Miriam, that was so well said and I think is so transferable to medicine. That's an important point you made too that we don't need to necessarily know all that information and I think you definitely have a luxury of time with your students and you Mm -hmm. get to kind of layer by layer go through that journey with them and kind of understand who they are as a person over time but Mm -hmm. I think what you said is so important that we don't have to have all that information but there is a big difference I think when you come into every interaction with an acknowledgement that it's there and it may not be ours to know, but that it's still, um, it's still a part of who that person is, whatever that context may be. And I think that that is, yeah, something that is really powerful in all forms of care for patients and for people. Right. Yeah. Like it it doesn't always have to be spoken. It can be those unspoken things that completely alter the way that you're sitting, the way that you're talking, the way that you're body language looks like things we don't think about because we don't think we have control over. But like the more you're engaged in that mindset shift, seeing the full human, seeing people as they are, understanding context, understanding systemic injustices that lead to certain health concerns. Like the more that you open yourself up to that, how people perceive you will change. You know, something that we've been talking about is showing up fully for our students, your students, future patients, you know, what are your thoughts on how, how can you, or can you at all, you know, show up fully for your patients or your students um, if you're not showing up for yourself? I think you can and you can't. I think you can in like short-term doses, right? You can have a really hard day and not being getting eight hours of sleep and then you show up for work and you truly do care for the patients that you see and you do the best you can. But like long-term, years and years of that, of not pouring into yourself, you, you really can't. You can't because you'll miss things and, and not because you're a bad doctor, but because you're human. And if you're not if you're not pouring into yourself and you're not meeting your own needs, how are you going to ever help another person? And you can help them, but how are you going to see everything when your eyes are, are looking at all, all the things you're struggling with? How are you going to see all the things we talked about, the holistic pieces of them? You can't. So I do think that self-care is so important and I'm not a huge fan of the word self-care anymore because like every single mental health term like it becomes co-opted and like changed to mean something very much suiting our economic system right so like right now self-care means like in the in the mainstream of course means like bath bombs and like spa days and like traveling to different countries and like taking me time I think for me 
self-care in my life, what it has looked like is meeting my needs. So I don't know if y'all are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Where you have like basic needs at the bottom, right? Those are like the most important. If you don't have food, water, shelter, how are you going to survive? And then, you know, as you get up the ladder, there's like belonging and safety and, and community and all these things. And of course, that's one perspective. There's many non-Westernized perspectives on hierarchies of needs and what that looks like. But what I'm saying is your needs look different at different times of your life. And I think what self-care is, is giving yourself time and space to examine those needs and then meet them. So like the way that I conceptualize this is through my own story where like at different points of my life I had very different needs and that looked like a different type of self-care and self-love. So like when I was first starting out college you remember Brittany I was like hustling like I had two three jobs at a time I was taking 18 credit hours right like I was not having a single moment in the day to myself and at that moment in my life like my needs were pr primarily financial and I had to do things and care for myself so that I could survive so I I did things like creating checklists for every single little task I could ever imagine putting it down on a to-do list so I could give myself like a little bit of peace of mind a breath to check everything off, learning how to manage my time, my schedule, learning how to create goals for myself. Like those were, that was how I cared for myself. That was how I responded to my needs. But then as I, you know, became a little bit more financially stable, those types of like self-care were not as needed. And I was able to move into a different type of care where I started realizing I had a lot of unmet, like mental, social, emotional needs. That was a time in my life after, during college slash during grad school where I finally let myself grieve. Um, I had lost my father when I was four and I never really knew what it looked like to grieve that loss and to, and to live a life that honored my father and, and what I had been through. And self-care at that moment looked like giving myself space to cry all the time. Like I would just cry random moments and I was also lonely because I was off in grad school. Like I just let myself feel every single possible emotion that I could feel. And then I started, you know, reading books that were helping me process things um, and learning coping strategies. That, that was a way I kind of cared for myself at that point in time where I was, I had a few panic attacks throughout my life and I learned what my body needed in those moments, what worked for myself and my body. So that's a long, long-winded way to say, just take a moment to stop. I know that there's barely any of those moments in your day right now, but anytime you do get a moment, it could even be like, Brittany, when you're right, when you're driving to school, right? Like on that 20, 30 minute car ride or on the train ride, like those types of moments are so precious to just sit with yourself. Or if you're someone who likes to pray, you know, you, you have a religion that you adhere to, that's a moment you could kind of like pray or meditate or whatever you like to do to kind of give yourself the space to reflect on where am I in this moment and what do I need? Do I need to hug myself and to give myself like, care and understanding and kind words or do I need to you know set goals for myself like what do I need in these moments and if you don't take the time to stop and examine how you were doing or talk to yourself about about where you're at you won't be able to show up 100% as yourself because you are not allowing yourself to show up 100%
and of course get the care that you need I'm a big advocate for you know go get some therapy if you feel like you're in a place where that would be beneficial like go find a community find a support group find a community organization that you want to get plugged into like find ways to build the life that you want to live um of course those are things that are important too but i would say first and foremost like find time to check in on your needs and respond to those needs i think all of this brings us kind of back to the beginning and back full circle where you know we need to fill our own cups mm-hmm. and kind of be there for ourselves in order to show up for others and mm-hmm. also as we're talking through all this i'm thinking you know that's really hard to do it's not it's not an easy thing and i'm wondering for you miriam how do you get through those losses or that pain or those hard days like what is it that gives you hope and gives you kind of the motivation and drive and inspiration to keep doing the the work that you're doing that's just such a good question yeah I so like in the beginning I talked about how when I knew that this was my calling I used to get so emotionally affected by the things I would see because you know, I, I really do enjoy my job and, and honestly 90% of it is so lovely and kids are just so happy and fun and, and just make me smile. But there are those moments where you hear about abuse or moments where I've seen abuse and had to make calls that I didn't want to make or, you know, there are some days where it just gets so hard. And at the beginning when I had that moment where I was like, this is the work I need to be doing. I feel like I need to be in the field working with kids one-on-one and not above I remember (laughs) I was so emotional um in that experience that I was in working with those like kindergarteners on like um this like spring break uh work that I did and I remember I I was praying I'm a Christian and I was praying and I was like God if this is the work you want me to do you better give me the tools that I need to do this because like I'm a wreck like I'm crying every day and I'm just like losing it over these poor children and what they're going through and and, you know also thinking about what I've been through and not fully having healed from that at that moment in my life like it was just a lot so I think for me I kind of made a choice in that moment if this is the field that I want to go into I'm going to do what it takes to do that and I'm going to seek the support I, I get whether it is through you know prayer or through friendships or through community or through therapy like I I want to show up and I want to do this work. So I was very aware of what I was getting into. There was no surprise of like, oh my God, this is the real reality of schools. Honestly, as I have been healing from my own traumas, I'm able to hold the pain of others in a much different way. Like I do get sad because I'm human and I do get hurt by the things that I see and hear, but I I ground that in a lot of hope and I think working with kids, it's easy to do that because kids, no matter what they've been through, nine times out of 10, they come to school smiling or forgiving the person who hurt them or, you know, whatever it is, like they have such beautiful souls. And I think no matter what I see and experience in my own life, I'm always coming back to that hope. That is so powerful and so inspirational and I think is a good reminder to us all that throughout anything there there can be hope and we can find hope in whatever corners 
we we choose to see it. Mm-hmm. With that, I just wanted to say thank you so much again for being here and taking the time to talk and looking forward to many more chats in the future. I loved being here. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.